only source of true delight whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding Today's word comes, from, comes to us from Romans uh, chapter 7. And if you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find that on page 943. This morning we're going to ban- begin in Romans chapter 7 beginning in verse 1, 1 through 13. Verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of, of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known that it is what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. The reading of the word. One of my uh, favorite movies or movie series growing up was Tarzan. Uh, And the one, the Tarzan that I knew, some of you could say it as well, is Johnny Weissmuller. Johnny Weissmuller is the true Tarzan. Um, All others are fakes. Uh, He was a former Olympic swimmer, and so every... Tarzan movie, of course, had to have him in the river fighting a crocodile, showing how well he could swim. That's when he was most Tarzan uh, is swimming. <clears throat> I mean, he, f- he did the vines, but any of us could have done that. But we just couldn't swim like he could swim. 
And of course, he had the me Tarzan, you Jane, and always tickles me because I can't, I, I, I didn't look it up, but I remember one far side where Tarzan and Jane are in counseling, marriage counseling. And she's apparently trying to tell the counselor something. She's up, oh, there he goes again, beating his chest, yelling. You know, like you can imagine if that's the conversation you have with him, he gets frustrated and says, oh, you know. So she's just, her whole life is full of this, you know, try to have a conversation with him and he starts yelling. Um, but one of the things, the thing that I remember most about uh, Tarzan, more than anything, and I guess it was the horror of it as a child, was, and, and apparently these aren't as common as you'd think, but in the Tarzan movies, you could go anywhere, anytime and fall into quicksand. That was a huge, huge thing. And every movie, apparently, somebody got caught in the quicksand. And, and I mean, to watch, and usually it was bad guys, so it was good for them to get in the quicksand. But, but it's just horrible to see this person struggling and struggling and, you know, lower, lower, and then the hand, and then it's out. Just, and as a child, I just I thought of over and over and over again of what that would be like, that you're there under the quicksand and you can't get out, you know. Just a horrible thought. May you not have that thought today. Uh, <laughs> as I plant it in your mind. Um, that, that comes to mind uh, as I read this passage in Romans 7. And it, the law was intended to be a pathway to life. The, the law is intended to be the way that you love God and the way you love people, to point out in every way how you're to spend yourself. Christ, being the fulfillment of that law, demonstrated this is how the law is lived out. This is how the character of God shows itself in, in love. Jesus summarized the law as loving God and loving people. And yet, for, for the Jews, as the representatives of mankind... Apart from the spirit in the main, it was quicksand to them. It was deadly, as we saw last week. It was that which not only didn't cause them to obey God, but as Paul talks about it in the first six verses, it aroused sinful passions within them. It arouses our sinful passions and causes the very opposite Commands us to obey God, but because of our naturally rebellious heart, a rebellious heart rebels. When God's authority is expressed in the law, our hearts, which by nature rebel against God, fire into action against that law. We have fundamental desires against God. And when God draws near to us in His law, these desires manifest themselves and express themselves in every part of our personalities, as He talks about our members, all of our capacities. The law is holy and good. I am not. And when that holy and good law is brought to bear in my life, there is a combustion of rebellion. An epidemic breaks out. In the face of this law. And as Paul gives the illustration of a woman who is released through the husband's death, there was nothing less than that had to occur. That's how serious the situation was. There had to be a death. Jesus, in a sense, 
stood in our place, truly stood in our place, but in a sense the law which had gripped us and was causing us to sink under now had him because he joined himself to us. He was gripped by the law. And the law had us, but it had us in him. It's not what we can do with the law, but what Jesus will do with the law. And in Jesus, the law met one with unlimited holiness and goodness. In our humanity, he obeyed the law. In our humanity, he fulfilled the law. In our humanity, he bore the punishment of the law and exhausted the law's obligation and debt fully in his suffering and death. And in his resurrection, the grip of the law that, and sin that had on, uh, the, the, the grip that law and sin had on Christ was forever broken. And therefore, all joined to him, it's forever broken. That's what it took. That's why he says it is through the body of Christ that you died to the law. And now we are joined to Christ, this resurrected Christ. Now, as he says, we don't serve under the old written code, but the new life of the Spirit. In this life-giving union with Christ, His Spirit dwells within you, and it springs forth life in you, and you bear fruit for God, as he says. So there had to be a radical, radical action of God becoming man, joining to our humanity, and putting to death this relationship uh, with sin that was killing us, not because uh, with the law that was killing us, not because there was anything wrong with the law, but because we were so sinful. But the thing that comes up, and, and up to this point, Paul has said several things that are pretty negative about the law. Uh, he talked in chapter 3, verse 20, about the fact that it's not that the law brings justification or as the Jews thought, the law protects them and makes sure that they're going to be going to God, but it actually does the opposite. You won't be justified by this law that you're keeping. Through the law actually comes the knowledge of sin. In chapter 4, verse 15, the law brings wrath. You hold on to the law, the law brings wrath ultimately because it demonstrates your sin. It exposes your sin. And in chapter 5, he says, The law came in to increase the trespass. <laughs> what? The law is supposed to help us, keep us from sinning. And Paul, you, a Jew, you're saying that the law increases the trespass. And that's probably how we should understand uh, Galatians 3, where he says the law was given because of trespassion, because of transgression. It was given to bring about a full display of the sinfulness of mankind. Now, because of all of that negative talk about the law, there's a need for Paul to defend the law and to show the true nature of sin and that it's not the law itself, but it's what we bring to the law that is the real issue. And you might be interested in this too. In verses uh, 5 and 6, you really have an outline of the next two chapters. Because in chapter 5, he talks about living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit. 
And so from verse 7 to verse 25, you really have an explication or an explanation of that verse 5. Okay? Then beginning in verse 8, he begins to explain the life of the Spirit. There's hardly any mention of the Spirit in, in chapter 7 except for this verse in, in verse 6. So that now we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. Well, verse chapter 8 lays out that life of the Spirit. Chapter 7 lays out that life in the flesh. So, verses 5 and 6 give you the outline of, of what's coming. Now, we're going to ask two basic questions of this section, verses 7 through 13. The first question is, who is the I here? Okay, It's a giant, giant question, and I'm unworthy to tell you the answer uh, <laughs> because of all the you know, scholarship that has gone into this question. There's even the question, does the I change in verse 14? Because he goes from past tense I to present tense I. So some people think, for instance, that verses 7 through 13, he's a non-Christian I. And verses 14 and following, he's a Christian I. Okay? So that's one question as to whether this, he's an unbeliever or a believer in these sections. But it's a bit more complicated than that. And it may not look on the surface as, as complicated. The problem with this simply referring to Paul himself is it's difficult to make it fit his life in any way that we can make sense of. And this is why uh, other alternatives have been uh, sought. Now, for instance, one approach has been, well, the question is this. Where, where was Paul when he was alive apart from the law? What period of his life was he alive apart from the law? And one uh, scholarly answer that several have followed was actually this, that before he was bar mitzvahed, okay, he was a child, and by the time he was bar mitzvahed at 12 years old, he began to have the desires of an adolescent, that's where covetousness comes in, and they make that to be sexual desire, and the law, which is applied in a new way when you reach manhood, came to him along with these desires, and that's what it's talking about. Um, that's an attempt to try to find some meaning of this uh, phrase, I was once alive apart from the law. Now, others... Have and I would lean this way if I took this view, uh, that it means I was once alive apart from the law. That is, uh, I, I didn't really understand my sin. But then the law came to me in a fresh application. I became convicted of my sin. And so the commandment that promised life became death to me. In other words, I was convicted and shown that I was under judgment because of this. One of the problems with this is to ask, when did that happen in Paul's life? Because Paul, it appears, was running after persecution of the Christians right up to the minute where Jesus appeared. And that his realization of these things about the law came after his confrontation with 
Christ on the road, not so much some prior confrontation or meeting with the law of God that prepared him or, or caused him to die, so to speak. And in, in what sense was he even alive before that? Now, what would be an alternative? Who in the world could he be talking about instead of himself? Because he uses the word I. Well, there are two uh, very well-known and in, in least scholarly circles, and these are two views that have been held across 2,000 years of the church as well. So uh, it's not something new, fangled, so to speak. One of them, both of these depend on this fact. It's, it's hard for us to understand that sometimes writers would speak in terms of first person for effect, a rhetorical advice, uh, a, a rhetorical device. Speak in first person as a way to emphasize, to make something graphic, to make it real and present. Uh, you, you get this in the very next book in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, very well-known passage. And, and Paul begins that passage, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, Paul's not speaking about himself only. He said, now this doesn't apply to any of you. I'm just talking about myself now, okay? We, we know that's not the case. We know that he is putting himself, he's using the first person to put us in that situation. We all become the I there. He could say as well, all of us, if we speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, we are a noisy gong or clang, clanging cymbal. Many times in the Psalms and poetry, both in pagan circles and in biblical circles, the I is used uh, both in the Psalms and the prophets uh, to, to be a representation of all the people, but it's spoken of in first person. So some have said uh, that's what we think is happening here. Uh, and there are two eyes uh, that it could apply to. One is that it's, it's a rehearsal of Adam's fall. And you might think that this is very far-fetched, but it's interesting that in Jewish circles, they taught that Adam actually received the law at the time of his creation. Uh, for instance, it says uh, in Jewish literature, God the Lord took the man and let him dwell in the Garden of Eden so that he might serve according to the law and follow his commandments. And if Adam had, quote, kept the commandment of the law and observed its commandments, he would have lived and like the tree of life continued to exist for eternity. So in Jewish thought, Adam is made the recipient of the law to join his story with Moses. And it could be that uh, Paul having been raised in that kind of thought world and been taught this himself, is using that familiar uh, understanding to even use the word, uh, the, the, the law of coveting, which you might think, well, how could he apply the law of coveting to Adam? Also, the, 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 the command of coveting has particular application uh, because of its emphasis on desire. That very word is used when it 
talks about her desire for the tree. Um, and other words that he uses here make one think that's the only way it fits. I was once alive apart from the law. This could be a description of Adam. I was alive before the commandment of God came to me. And isn't it interesting that with the serpent, if there hadn't been a command about the tree, what would he have said to her? Because the first words out of his mouth were, has God said? You know, like, a, I know there's a, been a commandment, right? And immediately it was the command that he attacked. It was the command that he used to get hold of her. And so it, it really is, as you think about it, being a description of Adam and how through the commandment, sin entered and I died. Gosh, what a picture. What a, what a seeming picture it could be of Adam. The very commandment that promised life. If you'll you know, obey me, you will live. It proved death to me. And even the word deceive, that's the very word that's used of, of Eve in 1 Timothy 2.14 and 1 Corinthians 11.3, the word deceive. So it, it really does have a lot about it that seems to indicate Paul here purposely rehearsing uh, the, the fall of Adam and saying this is what happens when the commandment comes to us. Now, I don't fully agree with that, okay? But at least I want you to understand that this is a view because I do think that there is strong allusion uh, uh, to that, the, to Genesis. And I think that Paul is, in a sense, embracing that as part of what he's doing here. Probably the strongest argument against that, I think, is that Paul specifically says in chapter 5, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression. And then he talks about the sin was in the world before the law was given. So he pictures the world as Adam up to the law being given. And it seems odd that he would come now and say the law was given to Adam. So that even though Jewish thought in general would say the law was given to Adam, it doesn't seem that that's the way Paul would use it. However, I do think that there is strong allusion here to, uh, that he alludes to this uh, event of Adam and what he does. Now, the other uh, strong view held by Douglas Moo and many others uh, is that Paul here is rehearsing the encounter of Israel with the law. And I think this carries strong weight. That Paul, because up to now, everything has been about Israel's encounter with the law. And so in a graphic way, Paul can be using himself as the I, joining himself, having a kind of solidarity now with uh with the people of God in their encounter with the law itself. And so Paul here is entering into that event of the Jewish encounter with the law and putting himself in that place, so to speak. And here we have the, uh, the, the summary of the law in the, in the Jewish world was the, the covetousness. Covetousness 
uh, for them was the essence of the law and many times was a summary of everything the law was about. And so this would be a good way to put out basically the Ten Commandments to say fundamentally, uh, you shall not covet. And then the encounter of Israel with the law because that's what he's been dealing with again and again, Israel's encounter with the law. But now he gets graphic and puts it in the first person and talks about how I, Israel, I, joining myself to all Israel, I, identifying with Israel and being a part of Israel, we all died when we encountered the law. But also, uh, several commentators, and I would agree with this, that Paul not only joins himself to to Israel, but he joins himself to Adam as well. And that's where it really gets personal to us. Because if you think of Israel correctly, you'll realize that Israel is a kind of recapitulation of Adam. Adam had the commandment of God and he rebelled against the commandment of God and fell away from God. Israel, the new people of God, Come to, are brought to God, God's command comes to Israel, and what happens? It's Adam all over again, falling, coming up to the commandment of God and rejecting that commandment, dying before that commandment. And so in a sense, this passage, though it's autobiographical in the sense that Paul can say, I and all Israel and all mankind, when we come before the commandment of God, This is what happens to us. We die. We fall. So Paul's not leaving himself out, but he's embracing much more. And it has such an effect, I think, to see his joining himself to all of Israel and really all humanity in Adam. That the very commandment, whether in Adam or to Israel, that was meant to give life, it became death. It was quicksand to us. It was death to us because we brought sin into the equation. We supplied that which destroyed us. And so... We should see ourselves, or, or what, what, what Paul did, was to see himself as in solidarity with Israel and Adam. And so the I really becomes the we. Israel's encounter with the commandment of God is simply a repeat of Adam's encounter with the commandment of God. Israel, representing mankind, falls before God's law as surely as Adam did, who represented mankind. We all in them, represented by them, that's what we are, that's what we do. And so as Byrne has written, Paul wants his audience to hear the I speaking in tones that evoke Adam and Israel. The primary emphasis is upon Israel, but this is told in terms of even Adam in these passages. And so the law, when it arrived, had the same effect upon Israel as the commandment did upon Adam. And so for all of us, Gentile and Jew, he can say, as he does in chapter 3, verse 22, there is no distinction. There is no distinction. When humanity has come to the command of God, this is what has happened. 
And in fact, as we've already read in chapter 5, in Israel, the, uh, the sin was actually concentrated in Israel so that the law came in to increase the trespass. It was concentrated in Israel, but that's where Messiah was going to come, is in Israel to save us from sin, not only Israel, but all humanity saved in Christ. So, a complicated way perhaps, and you may be thinking, oh no, why did I come this morning uh, to hear all of this? But I hope that you'll at least see this glorious, sweeping statement of Paul that I think is far more than talking about himself, but embraces every single one of you that you should see that in his eye, there's you. In his eye is the description of what you and I need, that we cannot come to the law except to be killed by that law, condemned by that law, and completely frustrated as to fulfilling that law because he describes what that law will do to us. And he, though two times in verse 7 and verse 13, is it the law that sin? No. Is it the law that brings about death? No, it's sin. And he says it's to underscore just how grievous sin is in us, as he says in verse 13. To show that it is sinful beyond anything, beyond measure. It's, It's the word that means to throw it beyond And it means that sin in us is beyond imagination. Because when the best thing of God comes to us in terms of His law, its purity and goodness and holiness, we become more sinful. And the commandment, the sin uses commandment, that is the sin in our own hearts uses the commandment to abuse that commandment. We are resentful of God's authority. We refuse His authority. And we turn away from Him all the more. Now, in the little time we have remaining, I want to talk some about His use of covetousness because it's a very important uh, part of this. And I don't think we have time for anything else, but I just want to talk some about that word covetousness. Um, As I said, the word covet, or the the, the Tenth Commandment, was seen as a summary of all the commandments. And you you can see this if you think, obey your mother and your father. Why do we not obey our mother and our father? Because we want something. We want to get something. We want to do something that our parents have said no to. It's covetousness. It's desire. Why murder? Why adultery? Why stealing? Why lying? It's as though that covetousness is this summary of all the commandments. And in fact, Paul says in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5, he associates it with idolatry. So it's interesting that The law begins with, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall have no idols. And it really ends with what Paul says is idolatry. That is that we desire something from someone else. We desire something in this world so much that we want it and we don't want them to have it. 
we want to hurt somebody, we want to refuse somebody, and all the other commandments fall in. We refuse God, and we want to hurt others because of our covetousness. And so we uh, chafe and rebel at our creaturely dependence upon the Creator. And when He says that we have would not have known sin... I would have not have known what it is to covet. It's not just that it points out what covetousness is, but I discover to myself what a covetous heart I have when the law comes to me. That's the terrible nature of my own sinfulness, is that this desire is a desire that is completely against God and completely against others, and it becomes clear only as the law comes to me and my covetousness fully shows itself. So it's the core and the sum of the law. And this was Jewish tradition as well. It's described as the beginning of sin. Not just that all sins stem from it, but it's the basic sin against which the whole law is directed and which the law, in fact, provokes. It's the passion, as Caseman says, to assert oneself against God and against your neighbor. And that's what happens when we truly begin to discover ourselves. I have a passion by nature to assert myself against God and to assert myself against my neighbor. And what a great depiction of the first sin that she desired something and she something else besides God and instead of God and before God and Adam fell in line in the same way. And so we find in ourselves something that's deep, something that's wraps around us and has us a power, an ownership of our lives in which we want to be God. And we'll do anything to, to protect that right to be God. And it is only, as he says in chapter 8, He says, the law, weakened by the flesh, could not set us free. He calls it the law of sin and death, the law of self, the law of my commitment to protect myself, to promote myself, to put myself forward, to put my needs before others, to assert my rights before another. Every marriage in here, every marriage in here, has demonstrated it loud and clear. Every family relationship has, has demonstrated it loud and clear. That tendency that we have. And so, sin arises and I die when the law comes. But as he says gloriously, what the law could not do, do the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. And he talks about God sending His own Son in chapter 8 in the likeness of sinful flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh so that we could live in the Spirit. And so I urge you in this study all the more to see my only hope is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And that mustn't ever be something that is not prominent in your life as you begin every day. And that's why even in your overall study of the, the Word, there, there's a lot of talk about how we must interpret everything in Scripture through the lens of Jesus Christ. And this is one of those passages that points you to that. That even if you're in Proverbs or you're in 1 Samuel or you're in Isaiah, wherever, as even our children's book says, every story whispers His name. Well, you need that name. You need the name of Jesus. You need His death and resurrection. And whatever issue or matter there is in Scripture, you must bring to the table the death and resurrection of Jesus who will deliver me from this sin, who will bring about the character that I see is needed in this passage that will prevent me from walking in the footsteps of the sin that is shown in this history or to walk in the footsteps of the character that is displayed. All The only way it's going to happen is the death and resurrection of Christ and my being joined to Him and the life of His Spirit in me so that I can bear fruit to God. And if you're anything like me, that is not the easiest thing in the world to maintain every day. It's not the way we tend to live and think about all of our struggles, is to put forward the death and resurrection of Christ. But that's why for Paul, it may seem odd to you and to me that he spends so much time talking about the law. So much time. But it's so that we will be separated from those that deadly association of the law apart from Christ and apart from the Spirit, just us in obedience, fighting it out, It'll kill you. It will kill you. May we all embrace the Lord Jesus Christ who saves His people from their sin. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we pray that You would enable us to see what happens to us apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, apart from the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit that apart from Christ, apart from His Spirit, that my sinful passions will be aroused, that even the good law will cause me to fall and to sink because I bring nothing good to the table. As Paul says in this chapter, in my flesh dwells no good thing. Lord, may we... See that this whole realm of flesh and the law and sin is irremediable. It is hopeless. And that you and your mighty work is our only hope. Oh, Father, fix, fix us upon Christ. Draw us after Him. Make us long for Him. Make us thirst for Him. Make every prayer be laced with the glory of Jesus Christ. Truly, may we pray in the name of Christ always, bringing all of our prayers through Him and by Him and about Him so that we will live in constant union with Jesus Christ. Bless us to that end, we pray. Amen. A pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, 
directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain, break radiant through the shades of night, and chase my fears away. Won't you chase my fears away?